And sorry if you can't see me on the podium. Short. So I'd like to thank Sakwa um, for inviting me today and to acknowledge. <laughs> yes, we try again. Okay, I'd like to thank Sakwa. You just want me to say that again, right? I'd like to thank Sakwa for inviting me today <laughs> and to acknowledge that we are on Treaty Seven land, um, which I think is a good reminder of our own lingering issues of race and community. Uh, but today, I've been asked to provide some historical context for the recent confrontations in Charlottesville, the long history of white supremacy that found its latest outcropping in this Virginia town. Racism and its historical manifestations is sadly an almost infinite subject, but I will try to begin to trace the origins of the various factions that came together this August. This particular story definitely <coughs> begins with the Charlottesville City Council's vote to remove this statue of Robert E. Lee from the public park. Such removals have recently become a source of confrontation in a number of southern cities, um, perhaps most notably before Charlottesville in New Orleans, uh, where the mayor employed armed guards to protect workers removing their own statue of Robert E. Lee, um, which happened in May. Other places um, have opted to do the removal under the cover of darkness to avoid these confrontations. Robert E. Lee was the commander of the Army of Northern Virginia during the Civil War, and probably the most skilled and celebrated Confederate general. He was also a slave owner, and of course, by definition, a traitor to the United States. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any direct evidence that Lee had a personal connection with this area of Virginia or had even visited. Um, it is only as his role as a leader of the Confederacy that his statue was there. Charlottesville itself is the home of the University of Virginia and is known to be a relatively liberal college town. Its location, however, provides one of the first clues as to why the events in August exploded in the way that they did here. Its geographic location in central Virginia places Charlottesville within fairly easy driving distance of not only West Virginia, but Kentucky, Western Pennsylvania, and Southern Indiana and Ohio. Not all within what we usually think of as the South, but all considered very red or conservative, politically speaking. The specific dispute over the Confederate statue also suggests the first racist group I want to talk to you about today. These people are probably not what you thought of when I said first racist group. These uh, fancy-hatted ladies um, like to see themselves, um, and others uh, probably saw them as well, as the very embodiment of Southern charm and hospitality but they were also Southern nationalists and white supremacists. Groups of women like this one were responsible for erecting most of the statues memorializing the Confederacy, like the one of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville. In 1865, elite Southern women began to form ladies' memorial associations um, to build and maintain Confederate burial grounds. Uh, since most of the southern dead could not or would not be buried in the cemeteries that were erected by the national government in the wake of the Civil War. Later, these groups also turned their attention to raising money to build statues that celebrated uh, what they saw as southern war heroes. 
1894, some 30 years after the end of the war. These memorial associations were superseded by the formation of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The UDC, uh, besides continuing the building of memorials, also sought to inculcate young white Southerners with a reverence for their version of history, um, particularly what they called the war between the states, um, or in the most hardcore cases, the war of Northern aggression. This version of the Civil War evolved into what is known as the Lost Cause, positing that the South had lost the war only because the North possessed more resources, not because the Southern cause, particularly slave slavery, wasn't just. Most importantly for our purposes, it romanticized the Old South and specifically slaveholding as a happy and prosperous place wherein everybody knew their place. And that's a phrase that we hear a lot. Now in case the racism inherent in that visioning of history is not readily apparent, it may also be important to note that the vast majority, majority of memorials to the Confederacy were built between 1890 and 1920 or so. Um, and this is a graph by the um, Southern, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, it, it's a little bit hard to see, um, but that huge spike um, there is um, during this period that we're talking about. Um, and that's notable because this was the time when the system of racial segregation was also being established and enforced not only by state laws, but by the violence of lynching, which reached its horrifying heights around the same time. As another marker of their white supremacy, uh, the UDC even proposed a national memorial to the faithful slave, or mammy, to be built in Washington, D.C. in the 1920s. Um, this was a project that rather incredibly got so far as the Congress making a land grant for the statue um, before protesters made them think better of it. So you can't see a statue of the faithful slave in Washington now. It's perhaps also important to note that the United Daughters of the Confederacy continues to exist and to promote the lost cause mythology even today. For example, in 2002, uh, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, tried to remove the name Confederate Memorial Hall um, from a dormitory that had been built with donations from the UDC in 1935. The UDC didn't like that. Um, they sued over the name change and the court ruled that Vanderbilt would have to pay back all of the UDC's donation, valued in today's dollars at $1.2 million, uh, to be rid of the Confederate name on this dormitory, um, something that the university finally decided to do in August of 2016. This group then may be seen as the polite face of the neo-Confederates who were present at Charlottesville albeit polite only in the sense that they use the courts rather than torches to continue the celebration of white supremacist vision of American society. So a more familiar link I'm not a historian. <laughs> 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 
better battle flag, so um, <laughs> we will get there. So there is a more familiar link um, between the Civil War era and the racial hatred on display in Charlottesville. Um, and that's the symbolism embodied in the Confederate battle flag. So, um, talking about the Confederate battle flag, what is perhaps most noteworthy about this flag is that it's used as a political statement, um, including its flying on the number of southern state houses, uh, largely dates not from the Civil War, but from the mid-1950s, and specifically the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision that ordered the end of racial segregation in public schools. The popularity of the flag as a symbol against desegregation should leave little doubt of the racial message it seeks to convey. This is a celebration of heritage, only so far as white Southern heritage has been built on a narrative of white supremacy. And yet, it has become a source of confusing symbolism, at least to some, because of its ubiquity. Notably, the picture on the right is not a political rally, but a college football game at Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi. Even as more and more African-American student, uh, student athletes took the field, at least after 1972, when the football team began to desegregate, the Ole Miss rebels um, continued to be cheered on by Confederate flag-waving fans. And although officially banned by the university in the 1980s, the flag remained in evidence at myriad tailgate parties. Besides football, Ole Miss is perhaps most renowned for its extremely violent desegregation in 1962 that involved multiple court orders, a riot that injured over 300 and killed two, and which required the ongoing presence of U.S. Marshals to protect the African-American students from the local Klan. Further, Mississippi continues to be sanctioned by, by the NCAA, which is the governing body of college sports, because of the state's continuing display of the Confederate flag. Um, South Carolina also faced uh, these sanctions until they finally took down the flag from the state capitol after the murder of nine black Charlestonians in their church in 2015. I bring these examples up to suggest that you shouldn't actually be confused by the symbolism of this flag, despite its integration into Southern culture. Because whatever else it means, the flying of the flag has been grounded in the defense of segregation and the celebration of white supremacy. It is not an innocuous homage to someone's ancestors or heritage. I also add that the, the display of the Confederate flag in a Northern context is even less defensible as a sort of heritage. So we might well ask a number of people in this city uh, with Confederate flag license plates on their trucks just what it is they think they are saying. Uh, <laughs> the flying of the Confederate flag should
should be linked not to sports teams, but instead to the rise of hate groups, like the Ku Klux Klan, a group prominently represented in Charlottesville. After the Civil War, faced with the emancipation of their slaves and the occupation of Northern forces, angry white Southerners formed various organizations that were meant to terrorize the freedmen and prevent them from claiming any of their newly won civil rights. The Ku Klux Klan itself was formed in Tennessee in 1866 by a group of ex-Confederate officers, including Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, um, who likely has numerous statues erected to him throughout the South. The KKK in particular gained national prominence because their violent acts led to a congressional investigation and a law banning this organization in the 1870s, um, although many other hate groups sprang up in its wake with different names. And the KKK itself has continued to reemerge to prominence at various times in American history. In 1915 and on into the 1920s, for example, the Klan relaunched itself as a sort of social or civic club, as they identified, um, complete with a ladies' auxiliary and mail order robes. This version of the Klan tended to be as much anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish as anti-Black. And interestingly, it also tended to be most visible not in the South, but in the Midwest, especially in states like Ohio and Indiana which notably also seemed to, uh, to provide a large number of the marchers in Charlottesville. There were also, unless we feel too smug, multiple branches of the Klan in Canada. Apparently Saskatchewan is a bit of a hotbed. This 1920s version of the Klan largely fizzled out in 1925 after a scandal involving sex, murder, and a grand wizard of the Klan. Um, that destroyed any moral or civic pretensions that they had sought to claim. But the Klan would again reemerge in the mid-1950s after the Supreme Court ordered the segregation of schools with all deliberate speed. This motivating event meant, of course, that their hatred turned back to mostly focus on African Americans. But while membership seemed to swell during the civil rights era of the late 1950s and 1960s, most of these Klan members were local in their organizational structure. Often they fought each other um, as much as terrorizing others. Um, and at this time, the KKK was also considered by some Southerners to be an organization of the lower classes. Which is not to say that most or more elite Southerners were not also racist. They just tended to belong um, to groups like the White Citizens Council that used their economic and political power rather than direct violence um, to maintain white supremacy. This White Citizens Council, after fading a bit in the 1970s, reemerged as something called the Council of Conservative Citizens, and again, it still exists today. You can visit their website. I also note the existence of this latter group because I think we tend to get distracted by the pageantry of hate embodied by the KKK's crazy costumes and burning crosses. But we should not be distracted from the more polite but also more insidious expressions of racism that today express themselves not through erecting statues or lynchings 
But through redistricting and dismantling civil rights and affirmative action laws that were achieved during the civil rights <coughs> era. The last group that contributed to the hateful displays in Charlottesville uh, were the neo-Nazis and white nationalists. And I have to confess that I know a little bit less about the specific origins of these groups um, because they have been more prevalent in the West than in the South. But that in itself is an important point. Too often in the past, racism has been viewed as a Southern problem and not an American problem or a North American problem. Um, but these groups, of course, belie that assumption. Like the KKK members, neo-Nazis claim a racial superiority over both blacks and Jews, while also, rather paradoxically, claim to be victims. The internet has allowed all of these various hate groups to find each other and to interact in ways that were not previously possible. The rebranding of an apparently unified alt-right, legitimized by their own media outlets, and seemingly now by the president, has recently emboldened these groups. They justify their positions as a defense of what they call term American values, which in a twisted way may be uncomfortably accurate. An insistence on free speech, even hate speech, the right to bear arms in public and threateningly, and indeed racial discrimination and anti-Semitism are, in fact, historically embedded in the American experience. But while those who I completely unobjectively will say are on the right side of history have used other elements of the democratic experience um, to press forward for progress and the expansion of civil and human rights, those who align themselves with the alt-right look back to a mythical past, one in which their whiteness, their Christianity, and in many cases their maleness and their heterosexuality gave them ultimate social power. Charlottesville then may become another point in American history in which individuals have to choose. Donald Trump's response to Charlottesville was not only a failure in leadership and morally reprehensible, um, but also factually wrong on a number of fronts. The decision, for example, to take down Lee's statue was in fact made by the local level while the hate groups were outsiders, although he flipped that when he was talking about that. Um, and the decision was made because Lee, not what, because he was a slaveholder, but because he was a traitor to the United States and fought in defense of slavery. Um, so Washington's statues are in no imminent danger um, because that's not why his statues were erected. But more importantly, I think, Trump made another assertion that there were good people on both sides of the protest. And perhaps the time has come to ponder if you really can be a good person, if you ought to walk alongside those bearing torches and screaming racist epithets. Further, is being silent an option or excuse in the face of not only this overt racism, but in less overt and more insidious circumstances? And to help you consider this, it may be useful to turn to the words of Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote in his letter to, uh, from a Birmingham jail, quote, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great, great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom 
is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux planner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. So to conclude on a more personal and perhaps a more hopeful note, um, I wanted to note that I teach a fourth year seminar on civil rights, um, that while it includes discussion of the hateful groups that I've talked about today, focuses more on the valiant struggle of leaders like King, and just as importantly, the ordinary people who risked a great deal to create a more just world. My students, at mostly white and middle class, are self-selected to care about these issues, but still it is a struggle for them to confront this painful history. The horrors of lynching, the frustrations of not only large political injustices, but the day-to-day -day injustices of racism. And perhaps most infuriating to the young and hopeful, the fact that this is a problem that has proven so difficult to remedy. Increasingly and sadly, I don't have to convince these students that the struggle wasn't that long ago. And by the end of the class, many of them have also begun to realize that it is also not that far away. And they begin to look for ways to create more justice in their own worlds. Now, I would never claim to transform these students. Uh, racism and social inequality are too ingrained in all elements of our society um, to, for them or for me, um, to overcome totally, to get rid of its inherited lessons. But I do hope and believe that I've given them a better understanding of the context in which racism was constructed, and perhaps the tools to look at things in a different way, to question their social assumptions about how the world is and ought to be, and to question their own privileges and prejudices within it. And I hope I have given you at least the beginnings of the same.